Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous range of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device on the planet, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, etc. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Drift, The Unmooring of American Military Power, the new book by Rachel Maddow, or how about Lord of Misrule by Jamie Gordon, or Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann, both of which are winners of the National Book Award. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the free book, it helps the show, I get a few bucks, it's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people, Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me talking in a slightly deeper voice. This is you walking at a slightly slower pace. Thank you for being here. Thank you for subscribing on iTunes or via Stitcher or listening on the Internet. Uh, or however it is that you're doing it. I certainly appreciate it. My guest today is an author named Chris Sacknesem. Chris Sacknesem. Uh, how's that for a name? He, he's, uh, he's one of those authors who has actually lived a very interesting life, which uh, isn't always the case. It seems like a lot of writers, uh, their work is very interesting, uh, but their lives, their actual lives, kind of pale in comparison. And uh, Chris, on the other hand, has lived abroad. He has lived in strange places. He has done field research. He has met strange people. He has had strange, uh, you know, times. He has done things. And rather than uh, talk about all of it now uh, and, and describe it in detail, I will wait and you can hear it from him. And uh, it's pretty unusual and rather fascinating. And, uh, of course, I should also add that Chris has a new novel out. It's called Reverend America. It is available now from Dark Coast Press, which is a great little indie out in uh, Seattle or up in Seattle. And uh, it's a book that uh, actually has a soundtrack, and you're going to be hearing bits and pieces of it 
uh, on this program with music by a jazz saxophonist named Eric Wyatt. So all of that is coming up in just a second. Uh, otherwise, I do have a plug. Uh, I've got a show coming up here in Los Angeles. Uh, if you live in the area or you're coming out for the Festival of Books, the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience is happening and uh, the Nervous Breakdown, of course, is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own little live reading series that takes place in cities all over the country. And uh, we're getting ready to have one in L.A. on Thursday, April 19th at Molly Malone's Irish Pub, which is located at 575 South Fairfax Avenue. Doors are at 730. I will be reading. Gina Frangella will be there. Ben Laurie, Claire Bidwell-Smith, Rich Ferguson, accompanied by Boss. That's B-O-S-S. And uh, the poet, Milo Martin, will be the MC. Uh, and there's going to be a band. John Elliott and the Hereafter will play a full set. And it should be a really good time. So please join us if you can make it. Uh, I would love to see you there. Uh, so otherwise, it's been sort of a strange day. I've been up since about 3.30. It was one of those uh, weird nights where I, I just couldn't sleep. The insomnia uh, visited. And I was tossing and turning. And I was frustrated. And eventually I got up out of bed. Uh, at 4 a.m. and just got dressed and I walked to the grocery store, which, uh, which was a little bit strange, uh, because for one thing, my neighborhood is not entirely safe. Uh, and so it's just, and it's a little odd to be out and about and at the grocery store at 4 a.m. because there was, you know, it's, it's normally a very crowded store. And at this time there were just a couple of people there. There was a very old man purchasing bacon in large quantities. And then there was a woman in nurses scrubs. Uh, who looked very exhausted, and then there was me. And what's interesting, uh, possibly, is that the last time that I found myself in a grocery store uh, at 4 a.m. was probably the last time that I got very, very, very drunk. And I'm talking like otherworldly intoxicated, uh, like top five all time in my entire life. And it happened totally unexpectedly, as these things sometimes do. I'm a little foggy on the details, and, uh, you know, I have to issue this disclaimer. Uh, I had moments in my youth, uh, for sure, uh, where I was a little bit out of hand, but I'm not a heavy drinker typically, uh, you know, not compared to some people anyway, but on this particular night, uh, I went to a concert. I went to see the flaming lips in concert. Uh, this was almost 10 years ago, believe it or not. And I was drinking beer, uh, at the outset. And then I was drinking tequila. Uh, and then I was in a very good mood and I felt sort of superhuman and I think it was a combination of a good concert and the energy from the crowd. And I was with some good friends and, uh, there was some good tequila and then the show ended and we were at a bar. And, uh, I remember I was doing shots of tequila very easily. And then I remember I was standing at the bar talking to complete strangers very easily and buying them shots of tequila. And then, uh, I remember I met some girls and, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess you could call them biker chicks. I don't even, it's sort of a, I don't know. That's sort of not the way to put it, but that's just the best way I can think of to describe them. These are women who, uh, like motorcycles, uh, and might even have one of their own somewhere. Uh, but you know, that, that, that's what they reminded me of. They reminded me of motorcycles. They were, they were wearing leather pants. They had lots of tattoos and, uh, I wound up buying them several shots of tequila and there were three of them. And we had, I believe there were three of them. I mean, what, what the hell do I know at this point? But uh, we had some sort of contest uh, with tequila, and I lost, uh, I guess you could say. And the next thing I know, we're at this grocery store, and it's very late. And uh, I guess they were driving me home, uh, finally, at some point. 
or, or they were driving me to an ATM because I needed some cash for a taxi cab, uh, or, or I thought I did because I had spent all my money on tequila. And at this point I'm just completely, uh, out of my tree, uh, but having a tremendous time. And so I guess, uh, what happened was we get to the grocery store and I'm supposed to be using the ATM at the grocery store, but I instead convinced these girls that we are going to go on a shopping spree. And I remember running through the grocery store, uh, just loading, <laughs> just loading up my cart with whatever I could find. Uh, we're talking like frozen items, uh, alcohol, magazines, fresh produce, loaves of bread, uh, you name it. And, uh, the girls, each of them, uh, is doing the same. Each of them has a cart and, uh, we're all running around the store loading up at my insistence. And the last coherent memory I have is running down an aisle, uh, in the grocery store, the frozen food aisle. And it's, you know, late, uh, three o'clock in the morning. I don't know what time it was four o'clock and I'm running, pushing this cart and it's filled to the brim and I'm running at an unusually, uh, high speed considering where I am. And then the next thing I remember is my phone ringing and I wake up and I'm at home and I'm in bed and I'm alone and I'm still fully dressed and I'm face down and my cell phone is ringing and it, it's about 9 a.m. And I pick it up and a, a strange lady is on the line and she says, sir, uh, I'm calling from Bank of America. There was a $900 charge on your card at uh, 3.30 in the morning and it was flagged and I just wanted to check to make sure that your wallet wasn't stolen. So I guess she worked in fraud protection. And uh, naturally, I'm a, I'm a bit disoriented at this point, uh, but it is all coming back to me slowly, and I'm piecing it together. And I tell this woman, uh, you know, no, no, my wallet was not stolen. I, I, can, you know, I can feel it in my pocket. And uh, internally, of course, I'm sort of freaking out, thinking to myself, uh, like, holy fuck, I just spent $900 on groceries with some girls in leather pants. Uh, but then here's the curveball. Okay. The woman from the bank tells me that the charge happened, but that it was then reimbursed and the groceries must have been returned in full roughly 10 minutes after the purchase. So it was a weird case where, where there was like a $900 charge and then immediate $900 reimbursement. Uh, so I got my money back. And of course, uh, hearing this, I'm deeply relieved and, uh, I hang up the phone and uh, begin my day. And of course, I spent much of that day uh, drinking water and uh, trying to hydrate and comprehend my behavior and the fact that uh, all of this had transpired. And I cannot, I, I just can't emphasize enough how out of the ordinary this was for me, like at that time anyway. Uh, like I was in my mid-20s and I'd been living like a monk, more or less, you know, for a while, just writing and reading and or trying to write you know, I don't know what I was doing. And, uh, certainly, you know, I was known to go out and have some fun, uh, from time to time at that age, but I was, I was not known to have that much fun. And, uh, certainly it was not customary for me to approach, uh, girls in bars, uh, like biker girls and to instigate, uh, you know, tequila shooting contests and things of that nature. And, uh, certainly I was not known for buying $900 worth of groceries at 4am on my debit card. So, you know, in the aftermath, uh, all day long, I'm taking ibuprofen, I'm drinking gallons of water. It was a very hot day. I remember that it was late, uh, May, I believe it was almost June. And I remember, uh, that evening I get a phone call 
another phone call and it's from another unknown number and I pick it up and it's the biker chicks. Uh, I must've given them my number and they were calling me and they were like, (laughs) it wasn't like, Hey, are you all right? It was like, Hey, do you want to go out again? Like we're going out right now. We want you to come with us. And, uh, it was, it was a little forceful. It was like, it was a little masculine almost. There's something about it. They were like, you know, we want you, we want to party with you. That's what I remember them saying, like something like that. And I remember feeling fear. It was like five o'clock in the evening and I could barely move. Like there, I was, I was, I, there's no way I was going to, you know, I was going to be able to do this. And I basically said as much. I was like, are you crazy? Like I am, I'm going to be in bed soon. And, uh, I think I made up some excuse and I said, thank you. And, uh, I said it was fun hanging out with you and we sort of hung up and that was that. And I never saw the biker girls ever again, which, uh, I do regret. Uh, I kind of regret it, you know, that I didn't, uh, go out and join them. Like, I wish if I could go back in time that there was some way I could have rallied and I could have gone out and at least seen them again to try to, you know, get a visual, uh, and to lock it in and to get to the bottom of who they were and to try to uncover the mystery of what happened, like what exactly happened in that grocery store, in that frozen food aisle, in that checkout aisle at four o'clock in the AM. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So you uh, were telling me before we got started that you've been living in Las Vegas? Correct. Okay, after, after living, I mean, your biography reads sort of exotically, like you're living in Australia, you're living in the Pacific Islands... Just the, the fact that you're living in the Pacific Islands sounds sort of, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, mysterious? Mysterious, yes. yes. Mysterious is the word. So, like, now you're back in Las Vegas, which has its own set of mysteries, but, like, what brought you there? Well, that was a good counterpoint to the mysteries and strangeness, you know, in, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, I got a fellowship uh, at UNLV from the Black Mountain Institute, a year of uh, free time to write. Um, and you just of, you applied for it. I did, All right. um, and it's so it's a prestige and an honor to win it. Uh, it's quite competitive, and basically they just give me time to write. They have allowed me some access to real students, which I thought was very brave of them. <laughs> um, that's been an interesting experience, and but I've decided out of this experience to try to base myself in Vegas uh, for the you know foreseeable future. And why, and why is that? Well, because it's a really cool place. I mean, it's um, it's a spectacle, you know, an ongoing circus that you can tune into anytime you want. It's figured in my past writings. My first novel, Zanesville, is set in a futuristic Vegas. Um, 
there's an interesting culture there that no one really gives it credit for. Um, and when you say culture, because like you know, every every I think of Las Vegas, and I you know you're always thinking of the Las Vegas Strip. Is that where you are? Or are you talking about the greater Las Vegas that ex- extends outward from that? I'm very much the greater and the and the secret Las Vegas. Um, there's a beautiful desert around there. Of course, it's like driving out into Mars or the Moon, and that's only five minutes away. So that's one good point. It's not just the Strip at all. But there's an interesting street and art culture there. There's a lot of young visual artists. There are a lot of people who come to Vegas to reinvent themselves. So you get people from all over the world. And there's an interesting sort of uh, decadent, lost, you know, old-time Vegas thing, uh, which is a little bit like the the, the human anthropological equivalent of, of the Neon Museum, which is this wonderful – it's basically a neon graveyard – on the outside of town with all the old signs and all that lost history. So, and there is a great history. There's the, you know, the mob, there's Elvis, there's Liberace, there's, you know, a whole weird, wonderful culture there. And do you ever, I mean, cause for me, like, you know, I think there's a lot of sadness in Las Vegas. There's a lot of sadness everywhere, but do you ever, do you feel that? Do you feel like there's like people there that are so down and out? I mean, I'm, I'm talking about casino culture in particular, um, but just, you know, uh, I don't know. All of my Vegas experiences tend to center on the strip. So that's kind of the extent of what I know about it. But does that extend farther out into the reaches that you're talking about? Uh, oh, certainly out into the desert. I mean, you get some hardcore people out in the trailer parks, uh, lost, you know, souls for sure. Uh, people up to some very, you know, peculiar things that you don't want to ask too many questions about. There is an underbelly um, around Old Town or Downtown. Um, there's no question a lot of down and out people. There's a big runaway teenager culture. Uh, there's a meth culture. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, a whole section of, you know, bail bonds, pawnbrokers, uh, whores on the, you know, on the down rather than the high class hookers. So there's all of that going on for sure. And yet there's a wonderful optimism, you know, about the place. And by example, I was just in Seattle, which you, you know, oftentimes might associate with this kind of clean, green, you know, very uh, environmentally, you know, sophisticated culture. I found the panhandling and the street hassle thing really heavy there. Whereas in Vegas, when I was driving home from the airport, I saw this homeless guy on the street and he had this big sign that said, I am not hungry. I am not an alcoholic. I just want to be laid. Please give me money for a hooker. <laughs> and there's that kind of humor. You know, but I, you know what I, I do? I, I sometimes think to myself that if these people would just get more creative with their signs. Like I remember one time a guy had a sign that said, we'll sit on my ass for money. <laughs> and I gave him money. I was like, okay. that was the guy in New York? He's maybe. A- maybe it was. I don't know. I think it was on a New York subway platform. There's a famous guy in New York who's on YouTube now. He walks around with that sign. Um, but it's just like, at least he's honest. Yeah. That was how I felt. I was That's like, okay. Uh, he's not bullshitting me. So like, I'll give him some money. That's his gig. He's like the the, uh, the cowboy who sings in underwear in Times Square. He's become kind of a folk. He makes a lot of money. Yeah. That guy makes a good living doing that. The tax department now wants to know about him. He's, I'm sure. Yeah. He's become I think he's company. making like... like healthy six figures <laughs> singing in his underwear what does that say about our culture hey it? you know he's doing it but uh so what part of vegas do you live in i actually live outside in henderson which is southeast of the city which is where a lot of people live um it's kind of suburban but you know it's easy and it's five ten minutes from the action so so how, how often are you seeing the action you go out there every night or are you once a week or Oh, I did it every night for my first couple of uh, weeks there. And Are you a gambler? Uh, no. 
No, I did. I uh, I play blackjack sometimes, but I a pit boss friend of mine said. I asked him, you know, can you spot a loser just walking in the door? He said, sure. That's Anyone me. Anyone who's been in there twice, you know? Right. So, no, I don't get But I like watching people gamble. I, I get off on that. Yeah. See, I go to Vegas and, like, I just... I, I used to be a lot more reckless. And I didn't... I've never gone in there with a lot of money to burn. But I would go in stupidly. Uh, it's like in my early 20s and just play. And usually, what would you play? Blackjack. Yeah. And I could play... I was one. You know, usually I could play the whole night, and I'd wind up breaking even or losing a couple hundred bucks or something like that. But as I've gotten older, my tolerance for losing has shrank or shrunk. <laughs> you know, considerably. I can't tolerate losing money. I love to win, but it's I called feel wisdom and maturity. Maybe so. You know, I went last time, and uh, you know, I was down three hundred bucks within the first ten minutes. Just had a terrible run right away, and I was like, "This, I can't do this anymore. No, I no, can't you- do it." Well, there is, you know, that's one of the things to sort of that that I enjoy watching is you see that psychology when people cut their losses or when they plunge in full and keep going. Um, So it's a psychological sort of hotbed if you're just, you know, observing. Oh my God! Yeah. So where do you sit when you? I mean, do you you just standing in the wings, kind of, of a blackjack table watching people, or is it some sort of? You have to kind of move along a little bit because some people don't like to be watched. Yeah. And the pit bosses sometimes want to move you along too, so you kind of just you know lurk. Well, yeah, and I think one of the saddest scenes you ever uh, run into is when you're in a casino at like four or five in the morning, and you see somebody there who's clearly playing the last few bucks of their paycheck. You see a lot of that, too. Oh, yeah. That's the part of it that gets me. It's some guy who you know got his paycheck on Friday night and went straight to the casino and has just burned through it. And it happens all the time. I recommend the Gold Nugget in uh, downtown or Circus Circus for that because those are just lost in time places. Yeah. There are people who have been there, I think, since, you know, they may have never gone outside. Ever. No. And you can still smoke indoors there, oh, and yeah. the whole thing. And you can see it in their, you know, their complexion and their the glaze in their eyes. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so let's. I, I want a biography because you seem to have lived. Like I feel like a lot of writers, uh, their li- their actual lives aren't that exciting or interesting. And I fear that mine might be coming. You know, might might be becoming that way, <laughs> uh, just because. Uh, you know, the, just the realities of existence. You know, you can't go travel and do the things that you wish you could do, but you seem to travel and do interesting stuff. So start at the beginning. Like, where are you from originally? Okay. I was born in Berkeley. Okay. My father was a Congregationalist minister, and he ran uh, one of the, the first Congregational church in the uh, university area of Berkeley. My mother was the choir director. Um, he was quite an eccentric um his great, his grandfather, my great grandfather, was one of the most famous evangelists in America of his day, and founded. What, and what was his name? Boston W. Smith, and he had great mutton chop sideburns, and he wore these tailored coats that are really in fashion again now. They're really cool. Um, he founded the Chapel Rail Car Movement, you know, especially designed train carriages that would travel around America with various ministers. He worked for the Baptist Society, and they would do services all over basically the frontier areas like Minnesota, northern Minnesota, all the way down to the south. And uh, he was famous for a sermon called Shun the Hot Green Slime of Lust. (laughs) This is back at the turn of the century, right? Yeah. 
And that didn't stop him from fathering 13 legitimate children. Wow. And chasing who knows how much skirt on Preachers the Preachers always have women. Oh, always. Martin Luther King had women. You know, everyone has women when you can preach. <laughs> this guy was unbelievable. It was just, and I have a, a copy of uh, his memoirs, which are just laughably badly written. Absolutely wonderful reading. Yeah. Um, and they're filled with all these things about these, you know, buxom young parishioners who make good you know, blueberry cobbler and stuff. Uh-huh. You sure, know, yeah. Sure. yeah. I code. know what that means. Yeah, code <laughs> for sure. So wait, now, uh, 13 legitimate children. Correct. People used to crank out kids. I mean, my grandmother had nine children. She was 90 pounds, like soaking wet. How I'm like, I, do that? I don't know. That's what I wonder, especially now that I'm a parent. It's crazy. And the weird thing about this guy is he was on, on you know, on the train a lot. He was traveling all over America. So, yeah. you know, you just wonder how much seed was sown. You, okay, know? you know, God only knows. God only knows. <laughs> okay, so you come from preachers. I do. My father took that. Uh, he came back from World War II, uh, a war hero. He was in the ski troops. He started preaching at a storefront church in Harlem. Oh, wait, what does ski troops mean? Uh, the 10th Mountain Division. The first tactical Alpine division ever developed. They fought in the northern uh, Alps of Italy. And uh, on skis. Yeah, and, and rock climbing and mountaineering. They were the first mountaineering uh, military unit. Wow. Founded, they trained at Camp Hale in 1942 and were deployed 44 and 45. So he came back wounded. Um, he didn't know what to do. He had this religious background. He got into uh, to preaching um, at the sort of basically the the street front level which is kind of where he always was he he's not really he was never really a a, a great theological spiritual guy in that sense he was spiritual in that social sense um he then went to divinity school and eventually met my mother she was a, a musical prodigy um who had a couple of illnesses that sort of kept her from the major big time musical prodigy in what capacity well, she was originally a violinist, um, and then she, her uh, brother um, broke her hand at a critical moment. And oh. She shifted. Uh, she sort of lost that high-caliber level of, of performance. No, musicians are always terrified of hurting their hands. Uh, that was a big turning point for her. Um, she actually sawed her violin in half, um, which is an interesting family story that uh, pretty poignant sort of, you know, symbolic gesture. But she's a beautiful vocalist. She was a soprano. And just kind of missed singing that, you know, uh, New York Met level. Uh, but she became the choir director, and they were a really great partnership. Um, so I grew up in that environment. And, and, and forgive me if you've already said this, but like what religion, like what particular religion was this? or what Congregationalism, which is sort of the, the thinking person's version of baptism. I, I hate to say it with respect to it, but in that sense, it's connected, it's affiliated with the Baptist movement. Okay. But it's a little bit more open-ended. Well, what is the Baptist movement? I know nothing. I should know more, you know. But what is the Baptist movement? Can you speak to that? Or I mean, well, it's if you can, it's one of many major Protestant sects that um, it's probably most famous for sort of taking kind of not a fundamentalist turn, but um, there are people who would associate fundamentalism with well, yeah, like Southern Baptist. Baptists are yeah. like they're hardcore, yeah. Um, and that's congregationalism is kind of a rejection of that to open things up a bit more. One of the things, the questions is, can we be redeemed through uh, our efforts and our you know, good behavior? Or do we have to depend on uh, you know, the blind mercy of God? And 
the congregations come down more on the side of our 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 works in life. There's more a sense of hopefulness, I guess, about it, rather than just this blind kind of whatever you know. We have to just give ourselves over. Right. So it translates into more of a social involvement, which suited my father's tastes. Um, and where did they meet? Where did your parents meet geographically? Uh, in Ohio at Oberlin College. Okay. Yeah. And the first years were really good. I mean, I um, he he was a, a, quite an eccentric sort of guy. He he was a, a passionate golfer, and um, I got baptized in a water hazard of a golf course in Oakland. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's passion. It is. Well, his and his great sermon in response to my uh, great grandfather's uh, famous effort had to do with an incident. Um, he was out playing golf early one morning, and he had the dream of every golfer's you know greatest wishes. He hit a hole in one, but there was no one around to see it, and it drove him absolutely nuts. <laughs> and he wrote a sermon about it. You know, the question is like. Do good deeds and triumphs have to be seen by other people to be validated? Doesn't God see everything? And he called it your whole in one, is in W H O L E. The the family's name for it was the Sermon on the Green. So he was quite an eccentric sort of character, and they had a really good partnership until sort of the the hippy trippy freedom of nineteen uh, sixties California kind of infiltrated our lives and. For him, that sort of led to psychological sort of work, going more into counseling and going looser and looser and into stranger things. He went down to Esalen at Big Sur and, you know, he got involved in all that stuff. My mother rebelled against that entirely and became more conservative. She became a music and drama teacher at King Junior High in Oakland. Um, They eventually divorced. Um, That whole thing just caused a lot of trauma in the family. Um, and I think led to a, a period of kind of real mental and emotional instability in my life, um, which corresponded with a, a really vicious incident where I was uh, attacked by this crazy guy and and uh, attempted rape when I was nine. Holy shit. Yeah, it was a full, and it was full on violence to get to escape from that. It was my first uh, experience of, you know, you have to fight for your life, do anything you can to get away. And So wait, where were you? We would moved uh, over the hills to uh, the to Contra Costa County at that point, and it happened along a railroad tracks when I was coming home uh, from school. Yeah, some he, guy just attacked you out of nowhere. Well, it turns out that he actually what the family mythology about this, and I deal with this in, in an upcoming book. The idea was that it was a random attack. As it turns out, this guy had been counseled by my father not long before. So it looks more like some sort of stalking thing that was, um, you know, pre-planned. That I wasn't just, you know, happened to be the victim, you know, at the day. Yeah. Which... There was some premeditation. To find that out years later has... um, That's why I'm writing that into a new book. It was kind of disturbing to find that out. And it took me a long time to find that out. But doesn't... I mean, okay, that's interesting. Because doesn't it in any way bring clarity i mean i think when you when you're attacked does it make it it's hard to even talk about it and use the right words but like does it bring clarity and any measure of comfort to have it make sense like oh okay so this guy came for me because he knew my father my father had counseled him or would you prefer to think of it as just a random attack 
Do you know what I'm saying? Is there any difference? I prefer to know the truth now. It, it, it's changed my attitude about, you know, one of the things in, in writing, in novels and stuff, when, when things happen and you think, oh, that's, that, that doesn't happen in real life. It's too coincidental. Things connect, you know? It just proves that things do connect in a lot of ways, oftentimes more than we know about. And if we did know everything, maybe we'd see a lot more connections still. Mm-hmm. But um, out of that incident, something happened that really did... Uh, have a huge influence on my life and, and my my themes in my, my writing. Um, when I escaped, I left. So how did you how did you escape? I mean, I don't want to make you like relive every second, but what happened? This guy just tackled you? Uh, base, well, he led me into some bushes um, by this abandoned mother's club. And isn't that a beautiful, you know? Yeah. It's almost too good. To, you know, you write that in and you think, oh. Right, but it was abandoned because things had changed. You know, that used to be a social center of the community, and suddenly people weren't a community in that time. It was all commuting based. You know, kids were watching TV. It had, everything had changed. Um, basically, I smashed him in the knee with a rock, and and got into the first really pitched battle of my life. That in that really ugly sense, and just ran and then leapt over a fence of a neighbor. But in doing that, I left my school books behind, and. Like I, of course, didn't you know care about that at all. Yeah. Well, he ended up ripping them apart, and some of my friends later found that stuff. And because I, I took about four to six weeks off to stay with my grandmother to kind of recover from it. So you told your parents? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They knew. But um, that's another story about how much action they took. I would have, if it was my kid, I would have you know taken a lot different action. Um and I really understand people who who do take a vigilante sort of stance. About oh that. God! I mean, yeah, I can't. I, someone touched like touched a hair on my daughter's head. I think I and I'm not violent at all, but I know that I would flip. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things, the denial and the whole um, the way it was handled had a huge impact on my reaction about my family, um, and that's another aspect of the book that I'm working on. But they found these uh, these ripped up school books, and then I was gone from school for six weeks. And this rumor developed that I'd been murdered. And when I came back, there was this whole sense that I'd come back from the dead. And, of course, you know, growing up in the church with, you know, the resurrection and the life is, the, is one of the big themes. And that's, as a kid, that's kind of one of the only things you can really get your head around. Um, that just pounded that into me, you know. It, and it's one of the themes, you know, that, that I've found ongoing in my writing about people coming back from the dead in various different ways. Maybe not literally, but... Sometimes literally, but uh, at least uh, metaphorically. Yeah, my God. So, what was the what was the reintegration like? And like, you know, you you come back to school, uh, people think you've been dead. Like, what what's the first conversation you you know you have? Well, um, I didn't have a lot of conversations for a while. I was pretty uh, traumatized. Yeah, yeah. And I think I would have stayed that way a lot longer had my father remarried about that time so your parents were apart when this happened they were that was and i think that was one of the things the instability of that that kind of the whole thing had fallen apart yeah um and we had a kind of idyllic family life up to that point so it was literally like a bomb going off in everyone's life and we all kind of have packaged that in different ways um I've probably sort of addressed it more directly, maybe because I'm a writer, you know, and looking at those questions. But my father's second family included uh, a kid who was, uh, he was six months younger than I was, but he was of a type that seemed older. 
he was a real dare, you know daredevil. Um, he was like Huck Finn at the at the first of it, and he really brought me out of my shell and got me, you know, back to normal life in a lot of ways. Um, I started training really hard, weight training, sports training. Um, my athletic ability really blossomed. You were a good athlete. Yeah, and um, that all sort of really came together. And I was, I was kind of, at, by the time I reached thirteen and fourteen, I was, you know, almost at that all-American boy sort of stage. Everything was sort of going well, and you would have never known that I'd had a period of quite strange behavior. Um, and, and as an example of the strange behavior, there was a period after um, the the attack where I would stay at, I would go to school, but I would return home and lock all the doors with our German shepherd inside. I'd put a huge stack of records on to make it seem like someone was home. And I'd go up on the roof because I could have a defensible position. Hmm. I could look around. High ground. I'd spend all day there. And then I'd sneak down when my sister and mother came back home. Hmm. And so it was pretty strange stuff for a while. But I, I got through all that. And um, But along the way, my, my stepbrother, that family was living in a harder core section of Oakland. My dad had moved. And it was there were uh, a lot of pimps around the corner. There was a big drug scene. And my father actually didn't turn out to be the great father that I thought he was. And I think he neglected my stepbrother pretty badly. And he had a reading problem, and so didn't. he was very bright, but he didn't thrive in school, and he began to get into the whole criminal thing. Mm-hmm. It started off, you know, a small way. Um, you know, drugs, housebreaking, stuff like that. Um, but he got me sort of into the drugs. You know, I wanted, he was my hero. I wanted to be like him. And I, I was kind of one of those people who thinks you can do this sort of stuff, and that doesn't change you. You know, you're not part of it. Um, and I think a lot of people fall into that life, you know, with that. And it's the way we get addicted to things. Oh, I, you know, I can, I can have some of that. And pretty soon, um, what, what would have been a really great athletic career began to suffer. I mean, I was obviously just stoned out of my head. <laughs> what you were know? you doing, smoking pot? I was smoking a lot of pot. I was drinking a lot. Um, we got uh, into uh, soaking our joints in embalming fluid. We'd break into this Undertaker's. Um, and you get a massive high out of that. PCP was just starting. What is wait? What is embalming fluid? I think I've actually heard of this, but what is like? What kind of high are you talking about? It's like it just slams you over the head. It's like a, it's like a real whack on top of the dope, mm-hmm. and you you know, it and it just completely you know fucks you up. Sure, really. um, it's not good for you, but it's it seemed cool, and we were cool with our friends and. Then my stepbrother's career started to sort of escalate more seriously into like real crime, like heavy duty stuff, and like what, like, like stealing cars, car theft, yeah, sure, like for organized groups. Oh wow, yeah, he was a star at that. He found something he was great at. You know, he it was, was his wizard. gift. Yeah, he was a wizard at it. So he and I kind of went off on these different paths. Um, so how did you know when to break? Like, what was it? It was all of a sudden he's stealing cars, and you drew the line. The line got drawn um, just after I'd won my uh, college scholarship, and um, he took me out to celebrate. And I said, "So wait, what college?" What? Uh, well, there were three colleges that I, I was originally going to: um, Harvard, Northwestern, Dartmouth, and Amherst. All gave me scholarships. No shit. And I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. Athletic scholarships? No, no. These were like 
you know, academic needs-based scholarship then. So you were a terrific student then? I was, despite the fact that I was, you know, just completely high. Um, and I didn't, you know, again, I didn't see the, the, the drug problem uh, because, well, I was doing well. I tested well. Um, I was good at, you know, every subject, basically. I wasn't a tremendous at math, I confess, but I could, you know, I could get by. Um, so I, I had this kind of mask, you know. It was like, oh, I don't have any sort of problem here. And there were a lot of us who were pretty messed up then. So it was easy to kind of, you know, as long as you were sort of making your, you know, whatever you needed to do. Hitting um, your marks. Yeah, no problem. Sure. You know? um, but he got seriously busted. Uh, and because the cars had been involved in interstate delivery, it was a federal sort of issue. And we got taken in. And people uh, thought that I'd been involved in it and knew a lot more than I did. He'd always kept me out of that entirely. He was very protective. But I saw that, um, and we managed to sort of wriggle our way out. That's a long story how we did that, um, and it's not a very pretty story. Uh, but I realized, well, look, that's just no good. You know, i got to sort of get, get out of there. Um, so I took time off, and I went down to, uh, to live in L.A. I lived... Um, uh, first in Hollywood and then in Pasadena, did a lot of really you know just crap jobs. Uh, but I gained a lot of material um, from my writing, a lot of uh, a whole sort of um, you know spectrum of society that you just I would never have gotten otherwise. And out of that, I decided that um, it was time finally to go back to college. So I took a scholarship at Dartmouth. Um, I went there because. I thought it was the most, the strangest and most alien place to me. And boy, was I right. <laughs> I loved uh, the New England country. I'd never been to New England. Um, but I, I absolutely hated the experience. Um, the, the student culture was terrible. What about it? What about it? You didn't suit you? Uh, well, I didn't know anything about the fraternity thing. I thought that was all a joke. I thought that was just like, you know, in the movies. I didn't realize it was all these, you know. And my freshman, they you make they make you stay in the dorms. Everybody in the dorms the first year. And my freshman roommate, his father was then head of one of the big stockbroking firms, who's now famous for you know terrible things. Um, I found out that I think that he's uh, he's done federal time for uh, some misbehavior. But he was then driving a car that I just can't imagine affording today. You know. Um, he, the parents would, would fly the, the family jet up to Lebanon, New Hampshire to pick him up on the weekends. It was like, and here I, I was doing all these crazy jobs. I started off in the cafeteria course and then I was a janitor. Um, I became a bat exterminator in uh, Baker Library. Um, I'd use uh, fire extinguishers to uh, freeze them and then bag them. Um, which I thought was a brilliant move. Um, so wait, that, that wasn't like protocol. You just made that no, up. No, that was that was pure innovation. I was really happy with that. And <laughs> no one asked any questions. They said, well, if you're the man. You get the job done. That's good. Yeah. But then um, I decided that uh, there was a big regional hospital there, and I had this pathological fear of, of hospitals. And I thought, going well, Going back to childhood. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought, well, the best way to deal with that is to plunge right in. So I became an orderly. And that was a great experience. Um, I mean, I re- actually really came to love that whole environment. I, was, I thought maybe, well, you know, could I become a doctor? I, I, I don't think I could have done the math and science thing at that point. I think I, or at least the math part. I think I was still pretty much on top of the science. But 
then one day they sent me over to the psych ward and I was just, I felt instantly at home. Um, there were some wonderful, crazy people who were sort of basically resident there. There was an outpatient program. And I got this whole look into a lot of things that I still draw on very heavily it's today. A, very Ken Kesey, you know, the, the cuckoo's um, nest experience kind of. There were just some characters there that, you know, just, just fantastic uh, little glimpses into uh, the human mind. And, I mean, it was sad and sometimes very scary, uh, but it was certainly well run. It wasn't in any way that that sort of decadent uh, or, or violent um, like situation. Like ex- exploitive. No, I didn't. Yeah, if there was, I didn't see any of that. Yeah. Um, but it was very interesting. And then I fell in love. Um, I'd had sort of several, like, major girlfriends before, but never that sense of, like, oh, I really want to be with this woman forever and ever. Um, and we got together, and we traveled. I, I won this grant, you know, which was a lot of money then, and we, we blew it all on a trip to New Orleans. And, <laughs> We were having a great Which is exactly time. what grant money should be spent on. Oh, uh, listen, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have done that any differently at all. And I was really happy to stick around that area. We had a, a place on a farm um, outside, you know, in Vermont, overlooking the river. And I was, I had a, I had the job at the hospital, and um, I had a job coming up as a literary editor. And I wouldn't have made any money of a, of a journal, but I had a good life. You know, I, I, I was happy. Um, she wasn't, she wanted to go out to the West coast back to the Bay area. So she was from the Bay area as well. Uh, She was from from the East and she'd never been in California for an extended time. So out we went and my father that had that point degenerated into a really serious alcoholic. I think he'd had a stroke and his behavior just changed because he had never been a heavy drinker before. And it's kind of unusual for someone to sort of change that much. Yeah. Meanwhile, my stepbrother was in more and more trouble. He'd become a heroin addict. He had a brain tumor and lost vision in an eye because of dirty needles. Um, Some of his gangster ways had gotten up to him, and he'd been in a terrible sort of fight. He became a pretty good martial artist, but he got really overwhelmed by these five guys. So he'd been in the hospital. He was all mangled. Um, Everything was different, and I didn't want to be around that. And... It was hard to find any work. We were living in a shit apartment in uh, Lower Berkeley. Um, I worked first as a security guard, escorting nurses to and from their car. And then a family friend um, got me this job as the circulation manager for an X-rated newspaper. And it was the outgrowth of the Berkeley Barb. It was their, their classified ad section uh, that had kind of paid the bills. And when, you know, politics kind of went out of fashion, well, sex, you know, still stayed popular. So I worked there for a year, and that was a really interesting look into, you know, the whole scene. Sure. Um, And then I decided, look, I'd done enough of that, and I applied for um, a graduate degree program at uh, UW in Seattle. And I got a big fellowship to go there. So you, you're winning grant after grant after grant. It's working out. It's working out. It's um, no, and I'm and I'm writing away, and I'm winning, you know, award. And I'm, but I'm sort of torn between like the conventional sort of writing that we associate sort of with you know literary fiction and more avant-garde stuff. And it's becoming obvious there's kind of the focus is 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 getting lost a little there. Um, but up we went to Seattle. I was beginning to see some signs of, of instability in my girlfriend. 
she had a history of, of mental illness in her family. But again, because of the drug culture and everything, that it was kind of easy to sort of gloss over that. You know, we all had some freak out, so you didn't really notice it. Yeah, right. It's part, it's part of the part of the experience. But we uh, we got this fabulous uh, deal of caretaking this mansion on Lake Washington. It was insane, <laughs> and all our friends, you know, are living in these wet little cinder block, you know, student houses and stuff. And here we are, the lords of this manor, <laughs> no responsibility whatsoever. And we had just insane parties where the woman who had owned the place had left behind all this old clothing of hers, like Carnaby Street fashion stuff that was like, you know, way out of date. And we would have these enormous drunken parties out on the lawn where everybody would put on some of her clothing <laughs> and we would play badminton with the sprinkler system on a timer so that, you know, you could be racing for the shuttlecock and suddenly this huge jet of water <laughs> and everybody just high out of their minds. Wow. It was, uh, it was a golden time. I was going to say. But, you know, that had to come to an end uh, because, you know, we, we were going to get kicked out of that house at some point. And we thought, well, we can't stay in Seattle having lived there. So she applied for a grant to um, go to Australia. We'd always wanted to go somewhere overseas. We knew all you know, science people and stuff. So we went over, and along the way, across island hopping, um, she had a kind of a breakdown and eventually sort of had to go back home, and I was left in Australia. So what kind of breakdown? Like, what does this mean? Uh, I think you'd call it a manic, psychotic sort of thing, you know? She lost weight. She just lost contact, um, just, you know, sex with strangers, bizarre behavior, you know, sure, and not doing any of her work, you know. So her parents came and she went back to America for a while. I was left over there. And that was when I thought, well, I need to get, you know, something happening. I want to sort of see some of this whole thing. And I was interested in uh, Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, Melanesia, the, the, the Western Pacific black part of the, the whole island. And so I finagled this um, anthropology sort of grant and got sent over there. Um, Through whom? Like what, what University was? of Melbourne. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so it was legit on the surface. So you went to them. How does it, I want to know how this stuff happens. You go to them and you say, I want to go up there and study. I need some I money. I knew a lot about the stuff that I wanted to study about through my writing so i was able to you know talk a good game and i was i had it you know because i'd just come out of a graduate program i knew how the system works i mean it's it's they're all a scam sure you know arts grants are the same you know so i went over there and to make a very long story short i got kind of too involved in the island culture for the comfort of the people sponsoring me my idea of anthropology was very much hands-on you know get into village life I got, and where were you exactly? I was in Vanuatu to start with, um, on the island of Tana, um, and then two or three other islands in that. Now, is that the same culture? Is that the same uh, place that... Uh, Do you ever see the movie The Thin Red Line, the Terrence Malick movie? The war I movie. Seen, I like his film. I haven't. I've never seen that. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. There's like there's a part of it where you know it's it's all about the Pacific Theater and the World War Two and. Well, that's where the action is. Yes, that is. I okay. Mean, that, that's where. I mean, there's an enormous amount of, of shrapnel and bone there now. And one of the things that I was interested in is the cargo cult phenomenon, which is related to in many people's minds to like the the ghost dance religion of Native Americans here, which was behind the Wounded Knee massacre. Um. It's a prophetic, 
uh, millennium movement that says that if native people return to their ways, then a messiah will come. And strangely enough, the messiah is, in this case, is from America. So the theory was that, that these people were heavily influenced by the influx of what they call cargo during World War II. You know, massive machines, appliances, all this Western technology. And in their sort of superstitious, magical way, they kind of took that on board as, you know, the dream come true. And that's, of course, very, very simplistic. And I just saw all things against that and wanted to investigate that on a more, you know, intimate level. So what was your life like there? Like, A, how long were you there? And then B, what are you doing on a daily? Are you living with these people in their villages? Yeah, yeah. And how did you integrate? Like, how did you get there and say, you just showed up with a suitcase and said? I had a contact. um, And, you know, I kind of had that knack of just kind of wandering into places and just stumbling around. And and one way was through music and song. I, I went out and tape recorded people. Uh, another way was through sports. Um, they're very open people. Yeah. Um, they'd had a, you know, they had had a lot of exposure to Westerners, um, just in very intermittent forms. I mean, you, know, you could meet one little boy. He came up to me and um, he spoke a little bit of French and a little bit of English. Pigeon, uh, which in Vanuatu they call Bithlama, um, and you know he made it clear to me I was the first white person he'd ever seen. And I said, what do you mean? You know, there's got to be all the you know, people coming through here. And he goes, yeah, but you're the first one I've seen. You know what? And, and he, he made the gesture of like, you know, I'm not that old. You know, I'm not that big. You know? So it, it was, you know, it was tricky. But uh, the other, the real answer is I, I met a woman who uh, helped me. Um, and it wasn't seen as sort of the right thing to get involved with her. Wait, a, a native? She was actually from the Solomon Islands, but she had moved... Uh, by this point, I'd gone to Papua New Guinea, and I was sort of had shifted my focus from the cargo cult movements, which are found throughout the islands. They take various different forms, but I'd kind of felt like that had been explored by other people and was sort of owned by other people. I didn't agree with the theories about it at all, but I got very interested in, in their practice of sorcery, how that worked in a practical way. And again, I, I found that there was a lot more to it than what white Westerners think about it. It was pretty condescending of how they actually treated it. And I wanted to get involved with that. And she came from that environment in the Solomon Islands. And she brought with her a sort of sense of stature and power. And she also had, um, she ran a bar. And uh, she got me working in it. And so there was, it was a magical time. I'm, I'm actually only just now writing about it. Um, two of my new books that are in progress, which I hope to finish, deal with that whole period. So it's taken me a long time to yeah, process. Yeah, I mean, got to be. I mean, there's got to be books in that. How long were you there for? I was there on three different occasions. So maybe sort of two and a half years in total over that time. But I always kept the base camp in Melbourne. And most people sort of associate my time away with with being in Australia. I wasn't at all open with my family about the time in Melanesia. Why? Uh, I, thought, I felt they just wouldn't agree with it on many levels, and I thought they would just plain worry about me, which was there was a good reason to worry, you know. Was it uh, dangerous there? Yes, it's very dangerous now in Papua New Guinea. Um, it was dangerous there. Then uh, there were major conflicts going on. Um, there's a lot of, you know, just general tribal warfare, which most of that is pretty ceremonial. Uh, there's violence, but there was, 
When you're talking about a culture, just to put Papua New Guinea in perspective, the island is the second biggest island in the world. It's shaped like a dragon, and it's second only in size to Greenland. It's divided arbitrarily in half, which is a complete colonial construct. The western half is administered and or controlled by Indonesia, and that's now called West Papua. It was Orion Jaya when I was there. Um, the eastern half is Papua New Guinea, which is now an independent country, but for years was part really of Australia, it, it, and Australia still gives it a lot of aid. Uh, massive mineral resources, logging, timber resources. Um, none of that money gets down to the people. It's one of the most immensely corrupt uh, countries in the world that way. Um, about 60% of the world's known languages originate from there. And one of the reasons for that is the topographical intensity of it. You can have people who live technically you know, a short distance as the crow flies, but because of the intensity of the valleys and the mountains, uh, they never knew, knew each other. Mm-hmm. And the highlands were really only you know, discovered in that white sense uh, in the 30s. So it's a very, very... Uh, it's one of the most remote places in the world. It is. I mean, there you... Yeah. And it's full-on mysterious and strange like you wouldn't believe. So what were your accommodations like? You're living there. Where, what are you living in? When I was working at the bar, I was living in a kind of a shack. When I was living in the villages, I was living in, you know, what we would sort of basically think of as thatched huts. Nicely made. I mean, the level of craftsmanship and ability of these people is phenomenal. Sure. Um what they call savvy, you know, that sense of being able to make something out of nothing. So it varied. I moved around a bit. Um, I lived in a, uh, an old mission school house for a while, which was pretty Western. I lived in a, the sort of remnants of a, a resort that had uh, been abandoned. Um, and there were various, um, you know, there, there's a, there, what, there still is a, well, a growing tourism industry there if it weren't for the violence. Um, but there are trail uh, sheds, you know, along various uh, of the major routes. So it was a, it was a variety of things. I mean, were, you, were you ever scared for your life or anything? Did you ever get into any kind of like uh, situations that were, uh, you know, immediately dangerous? Oh yeah, because I mean that's not hard to do. Uh, you can cross lines all the time. Um, there were about I don't know how many times that went on. Um, the emergence of guns uh, has changed things a lot. The, the conflict in Bougainville, which is uh, a major island that was had a copper mine on it, and there was a, a real political struggle. So there was kind of a civil war going on there for a long time. That led to an enormous influx of, of serious automatic weapons, um, and that changed everything. You know, if you, not that you, you couldn't you know get killed with with bows and arrows. I mean, they, those people take that very seriously. But there is a lot of, you know, they're violent. Papua New Guinea particularly has a level of natural violence to it. Vanuatu, I found people really relaxed and calm. Um, What's the difference? Well, I think there's a lot more reason to... uh, Vanuatu's had a lot more exposure to Western society. Uh, It was administered at one point simultaneously by the French and English. Um, So there's been a lot more contact and and connection. I think they had a better experience uh, during the war in a lot of ways. And also, they just don't have the intensity of, of the, the mining, uh, logging thing going on. Papua New Guineans see all this wealth pouring out of their country. 
and none of it flows back. They see displacement of populations where people leave their, their villages and try to go down to Port Moresby, the capital, to find work and can't, so lie out on the streets. Um, there's, you know, there was a gold mountain, a mountain of solid gold virtually discovered, and the major mining companies just, you know, take it. Um, Indonesia has been a particularly cruel administrator on the western side of the island because those people have nothing culturally to do with Indonesia at all. It's all about just exploitation. So I think, think the simple answer there is just incredible exploitation that that rivals anything we've ever seen in Africa. Wow. So how long total? Like, so you're you're there total uh, cumulatively about two and a half years. Yeah, over then, a few, over over say five years. Yeah. Okay. I had a couple of go rounds there. And then what about your time uh, down in Australia? How long did you live there? I mean, you were permanently based there for quite a while. Yeah, I, um, most of the time in the Melbourne area. Um, I got into um, the advertising marketing field after I decided I needed to make you know some money and sort of settle down. I had a period where I was I ran this avant-garde theater company, which um, we didn't make any money at all, uh, and we did some crazy stunts. So I had a kind of explosive art period after the islands, and I realized then it was just you know a time to grow up a little bit and just get some money. And I, I became a copywriter, and um, you were able to find work down there. Yeah, yeah. You get? I mean, didn't you have to get some sort of permit, or what, how did that work? How did I get my residency? Yeah. Uh, oh, so wait, you're a resident of Australia? I'm. A, I have a passport from there now. I have two passports. Oh wow! How did that? How does that happen? Oh, uh, not easily. You pay a lot of money. And you know, you pull some strings. Uh, but I lived there, and and I got a job, and people wanted me to stay, so they they arranged my residency. Um, and I met another woman, met a few more women, did a few <laughs> more jobs. Uh, the the advertising gig took me around the islands again in a different context, so I saw them from a different point of view. Uh, What's your favorite place in the islands? Like, like what, is there a spot in the world that I need to know about? I would go to the island of Tana and visit the uh, volcano, Yasser. Um, I think that's beautiful. It's a overlooks... Uh, a lovely village called Sulphur Bay, which is a black sand beach from the volcano, and beautiful purple cowrie shells. And you go up over looking the village in these massive ash dunes that's like another world. It really, it's like Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> and, but behind it is the jungle, and you hear this constant, <laughs> the volcano, with counterpointed with the insects. So I don't know. I would I would say that's a very magical spiritual place. Yeah. Um, certainly the highlands of New Guinea. I think that if you you know if you I wouldn't go there um, with with children. Uh, a lot of people do. I shouldn't pack my eighteen month old in the. No, I wouldn't do that. I, yeah. I, I would be you know you take her to, to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> I think you have to to look seriously at, at what's going on there. It, it you know maybe nothing would happen. You know, there That'll be my people. family vacation. We'll have our photos taken. There are great people that, I mean, all musicians I know, I recommend going there. Uh, Sing Sing is the, ba- they have major uh, festivals, but the major Sing Sing in, is in uh, Mount Hagen, uh, which is the center point of the Highlands. And, you know, the costumes are just unbelievable. And, and it's, um, from a cultural point of view, it's fantastic. And just the musicality of the people and everything else. I mean, it's fan- it, they have an amazing sense of, of music that you can't find anywhere else. I mean, 
obviously the you know the, the, the great African traditions are you know tremendous, but this is a different kind of take on music that I, I think um, I I really recommend anyone that you know to go there, but just be careful, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so, things can happen to you anywhere, can't they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, I, I almost feel like statistically, you're more likely to have trouble in Los Angeles than you are in Papua New Guinea. I, would, I think that's probably I would true. imagine. You know, I walk out my door, it's probably more dangerous. <laughs> in all this, what happens to you, I think this is what travel does. I mean, everyone who's traveled widely, I think, agrees with this, that you get, you sort of find the spirit that you bring to things. You know, if you're, uh, what's that Tom Waits line, you know, suckers always make mistakes far from home. That's because they're suckers, you know. It's like, I think if you're smart, if you're respectful, if you, you know, find out a little bit about where you're going. Well, no, that's like, that, when people travel overseas and they talk about, like in Europe, they always talk about the gypsies and the gypsies are coming after you and watch your pockets and people are going to take you. Know, I've never had a problem, ever. And I don't know if that's just dumb luck. But Knock it's like, on wood, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Next time I go, I'm just going to get, you know, raided. But I, I feel like I would have some sense of, you know, I don't know. I just I, I've never seen it. I, I mean, I've seen them around, but you know how to avoid them. It's not that tough. Is that yeah, my oversimplifying I, things? No, no. I, I was on this uh, little expedition um, up near the area where you remember, you remember Michael Rockefeller, where he's supposed to have disappeared. And these guys came through. Who I mean, they just it looked like the end of the world. You know, they were armed. They had they had shotguns. They had bows and I mean, they looked like serious people. And we were maybe in the wrong place. And there could have been a you know a conflict between the people who were with me and them. They were fine, you know. We, they ended up sharing some tree kangaroo with us. It was just it was all relaxed. There was no sense of any kind of. But it looked, you know, and particularly from like a white point of view, it could it looked really scary. Yeah. It did look scary, but it was really relaxed and fun. And it was so far from you know being any you know violent confrontation. Whereas some of the things where. Um, it looked friendly. Uh, turned out to be just the opposite. And I, when I worked at the bar, there was this guy who I thought was a really good friend of mine. I was uh, a really relaxed guy, and he turned out to be stealing from the you know. And when I caught him out, um, he came at me with this knife, and it was like, and there was no one around. And we're talking very powerful people here too. It's not like they're sort of you know. Um, and then he had a his brother was was involved in, in some other stuff too. So that turned out to be quite a little you know in, you know after hours struggle. Smashed a huge aquarium and just. Did you get in a fight with him? Well, I had to because they, you know, there was no choice. Right. It wasn't like something I volunteered for. It was like I need to get out of this room alive. Right. You know. So yeah, there are all sorts of, of things like that. But I went back to Australia and sort of settled down into a life of um, basically pretty intense alcoholism and uh, advertising. You know, work. People were snorting cocaine like there was no tomorrow. Really? Ah, uh, <laughs> in down. the boardroom. Oh yeah. Really? Oh no. As long as you won the account, no one cared. Uh huh. So that wasn't necessarily all that good. Um, I got married in the thick of that. And, Perfect timing. And, yeah, that was all. That was a good look. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the wedding was something I can tell you. Yeah. Um, no, but I I I got busted, um, and we got busted for what? Well, two things: the the coke, which that was potentially more serious. 
But because everyone was involved, there were several people involved, including some really senior advertising people. They, they made that go away. But then I had a, a GWI um, and, you know, all those sort of wake-up calls. And I, I was very much in love with my wife then at the moment. We, we had a good thing going on. Um, we thought we did anyway. So we moved up outside Melbourne to the country and thought that would kind of calm things down. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, <laughs> that didn't work. Yeah, right. Change uh, of location. It's just not going to ever fix it. No. Um, we got a, a bigger property and we tried to do, we kind of, we were one of those couples that spent about five hours, you know, a week talking, are we going to have a baby? Are we going to have a baby? You know, and, yeah. it, you know, it was like a, a game, a game of ping pong. It was just so exhausting. Yeah. We couldn't decide. I kind of was against because I was writing really hard then and I was hoping to get work published. Um, I was getting a lot of individual stories published. I was winning a lot of awards there. But whenever I came to, to deliver a book to Australia, they said, no, no, this is too American. And when I was trying to submit to publishers in America, they said, well, where are you living again? Mm. And it was, you know, sort of difficult. So to make a long story short, again, we, we did a lot of uh, experiment. We raised sheep. We raised exotic poultry. We had dogs. We did everything other than having children. Um, I ran an advertising business, um, with an art director partner. Um, he'd also had the same sort of drug and alcohol problems I had. And we decided on one day that if we were going to be serious about running a business, we were going to go clean or as clean as people like us get, you know? Sure. So we did that and we ran that until, uh, he got sick, um, a little while, well, four or five years ago, he died of pancreatic cancer. Um, and about that time, the marriage had run out of steam, and my wife and I exploded um, in a pretty... It was about as ugly as it can get without children involved. I can't imagine it getting any uglier. Oh, and, God. Um, like, what happened? Just Well, the, the basic gist of it is she had a much more vicious lawyer than mine. <laughs> and she did extremely well out of it, and I lost about 10 years of, of income. I was just... And that was the beginning of kind of my thinking that I really needed to come back here. I had two books sort of uh, starting to really hit. Well, you know, insofar as they were, you know, out and I was getting a reputation. And some of that art career that I'd, you know, really been longing for had come together. And I began to form that plan of, of, of decamping. From Australia. Yeah, forever. And that's the way I feel now that I'm sort of... But, you know... Okay, yeah. How does it feel to be back on uh, American soil? Was it like a relief or was it a hard adjustment? Did you, do you find yourself missing Australia at all? I've, I miss certain things about Australia. I, I think I've come back to America at a very interesting time, uh, you know, kind of a, a real point of crisis, which is both good and bad. I think it's good from an artistic point of view. It's interesting. It's not so good from a, you know... Some of the things that struck me funny uh, overseas seems scary here, you know, the politicians, um, you know, Michelle Bachman, Newt Gingrich, you can, you can kind of laugh at them when you're at a distance. Then you're Mm -hmm. here and you realize, damn it, this is, these people are real. Um, so that freaked me out. I, I've been able to sort of touch, but I've done a lot of traveling since I've been back and I touch base with a lot of the things that I did when I was younger. Um, along the way, I mean, I, I, when I was in college, I, for one summer I worked with, uh, the blind uh, at a camp for the blind in, in uh, the Northern California area. I'd worked for one of the last of the traveling family circuses. 
and I've, I sort of retraced some of that route. And that actually figures into my book, Reverend America, um, drawing on a lot of those experiences, you know, the psych ward, the circus. Um, the pre- the preaching. Con- I did, you know, and so it's kind of like a whole coming back to a big, big thing, you know, that almost so big, you know, so wide you can't get around it, you know, that kind of thing. And I've now been able to get sort of a point of clarity. And I think that's what the whole travel thing for me has always been, is like getting to a point of distance where you can see something whole. And that's hard to do, you know. It's actually very hard to see your culture. Well, no, I was going to say a lot of the, you know, a lot of great writing about a culture or a place happens in exile. I mean, like James Joyce being a famous example, you know, like he... He wrote all his books about, you know, he went to Paris and lived in exile and wrote all his books about Ireland. I mean, that's the way it works. I really, that's an expatriate point of view. I really understand. But there were, of course, practical reasons for coming back. Um, being closer to New York and my agent and, and, you know, L.A., the literary scene, potentially, you know, the film scene. But also my uh, my artistic collaborators. I have made a, a, a pattern now of, of with my last books of doing music soundtracks um, for them. The idea that, you know, really like a film soundtrack. And most of those musicians uh, are American-based. People like my friend Eric Wyatt, who's a tenor saxophone player from New York City, um, Sonny Rollins' godson. I strangely met him in Shanghai um, years back. Uh, He was playing at a club, and I was back on one of my long international halls and really loved what he was doing as a player. And so he and I have become friends. He's contributed to the soundtrack to Reverend America. Um, Christopher O'Reilly, who's, I think, one of our finest um, classical pianists. And all these people, you know, just it's easier to do stuff when you can do it live with them. I mean, I actually have done quite a bit remote uh, with people internationally. And the guy, one of my other key collaborators, is a fine young writer named Matthew Rivert. He's still in Australia. He's he's Australian. He he was the one of the, the key producer of of the CD, and I still do work with him. But it's great to be able to to do things live with people. And um, on the the recent tour for Reverend America, Eric's been with me, performing live, um, and it's it's just so much fun. You know, writing as you know is such a lonely sort of thing, and to be able to expand that network and to do things. In a more theatrical performance way. I mean, that goes back to the, that avant-garde theater company that I tried to found, which was completely crazy. You know, we were sort of blowing things up and um, night fire ceremonies and strange industrial theater. You know, it's you can only get people to go along with you on crazy things, finally, if you can get face-to-face with them. You know, all the, the social networking is cool, but... It, it takes that rapport, and uh, rapport is kind of one of my, my big themes. I, I think that comes through in all the, the books and everything I've written, and maybe it goes back to that, you know, the reintegration after the violence of, you know, my childhood, that um, how I reconnected with people was through either, you know, art, sports, or, you know, some of those sort of communal things. Mm. Well, I you know, it's been so fascinating talking with you. I could sit here and, and listen to these stories forever. You have uh, definitely led an extremely interesting life. and uh, We hope it continues. <laughs> yeah, right? Let's hope it continues. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, best of luck with, uh, you know, the final legs of the tour and with uh, Las Vegas and uh, your next books. 
Thank you very, very much. And um, I'm leaving you with a copy of our of the CD for Reverend America, which is going to be released in uh, three weeks' time. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. Okay, folks, that's it. That's the show. There, uh, that is uh, Chris Sacknessem. Go get his book. It's called Reverend America. It's available now from uh, Dark Coast Press. That's hard to say. Dark Coast Press? Dark Coast? Uh, if you want to find him on the web, he's at sacknessem.com. That's kind of a tough one to spell. It's S as in Sam, A-K, N as in Nathan, U, S as in Sam, S as in Sam, E, M as in Michael, M as in Michael. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know how to, how to deal with that one. You're just going to have to try to Google it, sound it out phonetically. He's also on Twitter. Uh, his handle is at Chris Sacknessem, and he's got a Facebook page. Uh, this show has a website, which many of you already know. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on the Twitter at otherpeoplepod. Uh, go follow it. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me something, tell me a story, offer your thoughts. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks to Eric Wyatt for the uh, saxophone interstitial uh, music. You can find him on the web at MySpace or at Reverb Nation. He's out there. And uh, you can pick up the soundtrack to Reverend America over at iTunes. Uh, otherwise, closing thoughts, uh, I don't know. I'm fading quickly. Uh, at this point, I've been up for almost 20 consecutive hours, and my head uh, just feels uh, soft, as though, it is, you know, as though it were full of cotton or something like that. So I'm a little punchy, and I have a weird amount of bodily energy consider, you know, considering my sleep situation. It's sort of a weird contradiction, uh, but I'm sure as soon as I lie down uh, and start to unwind, that will change. Uh, as for the whole grocery store experience and the tequila and the $900 grocery store bill, uh, I don't even know what to say about that. In, in a way, I'm strangely proud of it, uh, just that I'm capable or I was capable of that kind of uh, decadence. Uh, and, and of course, I'm happy that it all worked out. It seems like the kind of thing that could easily have gone wrong uh, had I not been in the company of such uh, nice young ladies who had enough good sense to return those groceries. Uh, so ladies, if you're out there and you're listening, please know how much I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. So that's it. Uh, I think I'm out of here. I'm going to sign off. Please remember that Voltaire once referred to William Shakespeare as quote, an amiable barbarian and that James Baldwin borrowed money from Marlon Brando to finish his first novel. I'll be back again soon with another program. In the meantime, uh, enjoy yourselves. Enjoy the rest of your day or night, whatever it is. Uh, and please do not drink too much tequila. And if you do, please hide your credit cards and stay away from the friendly people in the leather pants.